This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration's budget proposal for 2023 would give magnificent double-digit increases to some large agencies, notably Veterans Affairs, Health and Human Services, and Commerce. But can Congress deal with it in any meaningful way by October 1st? We get some fresh analysis from Bloomberg Government Congress reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. Jack, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. So can they? (laughs) I mean, these are some big numbers, but is the feeling that, well, since everybody's throwing everything they ever wanted at both defense and civilian side, it'll be no problem? Yeah, there is a sense that we could be talking about pretty big numbers in Congress, potentially with bipartisan support. Probably not the entire wish list that the Biden administration proposed in its budget request. You know, these budget requests go to Capitol Hill and more or less get tossed in the trash and then Congress really negotiates them. But the Republicans I've talked to about the numbers they want to see for government funding, talking to Richard Shelby, who's the top Republican on Senate appropriations, someone like Lindsey Graham, who's very involved in State Department funding and really a defense hawk, they've argued uh, you look at the rate of inflation that would affect the cost of goods and what they'd need to pay to military members and the Ukraine situation, they want a very significant defense funding increase. Talking to Ken Calvert in the House, who is the top uh, Republican on House Appropriations for Defense, he said they want a 5% or so increase for defense funding beyond the rate of inflation. Now, the expectation for inflation in 2022 is about 6%, so that would be an 11% increase. So these are early conversations, but we're hearing Republicans push for very significant military funding increase. And really, historically, in the last decade or so, there's been a, you know, let's keep parity between defense and non-defense and a lot of agreements to just increase both. So we seem to be headed toward that kind of track. Because in subsequent weeks, the Putin administration has again rattled the nuclear saber, and that's got to have even some Democrats saying, well, maybe we should boost defense a little bit here. Yes. You know, they had this fight on the fiscal 2022 bills when a number of Democrats, more on the progressive side, were saying, let's freeze defense spending. Some were saying, let's have a significant cut. Barbara Lee of California was sort of put in charge of those negotiations for progressives and was calling for a 10% cut to defense funding. They were going to lose that argument anyway because of the makeup of Congress. Democrats barely have the majority in either chamber. And also, there are a lot of Democrats who are a bit more hawkish than those progressives. But the Russian invasion of Ukraine really put them in a a difficult spot and made it much more difficult for anybody to argue for even smaller increases. So Republicans were pretty happy with what they got in the last omnibus that happened in March. And that seems to be carrying over to the uh, negotiations for next year. And on the civilian side, how do they justify, say, 27 percent increase for health and human services? Well, yeah, they are sort of pitching Congress on their wish list. Uh, You keep in mind these presidential budget proposals typically are not realistic. So when you look at these comparisons, they compare to the 2021 levels because the omnibus for 2022 had just come out. But when you see a 31 percent increase over two years for the Department of Commerce, 27 percent increase in funding for HHS, Housing and Urban Development and Department of the Interior are both 20 percent or more. Same for education. One, they never get everything they want. But remember that, especially since sort of the early Obama era, 
parity is the key word in congressional negotiations where they aim for similar increases for defense and non-defense. And if you have Republicans pushing for a very significant defense funding increase, Democrats are going to demand similar numbers for non-defense. So they're in a politically realistic way. I, you know, we could be talking about significant increases on both sides of the ledger just because that's how it has worked for a number of years now. Right. The whole thing becomes one giant earmark. We're speaking with Jack Fitzpatrick, Congress reporter for Bloomberg government. So then what are the prospects for wrapping anything up by October 1st? They are pushing on this. You know, they're off to a very late start. Uh, They didn't finish work on fiscal 2022 until the middle of March, almost halfway through the year. But they're having negotiations now on, all right, what should the defense and non-defense numbers be? The top four appropriators, they call them the four corners, the top House and Senate Republicans and Democrats of the appropriations committees have met and said they had a very positive meeting. And Senator Leahy, the Senate appropriations chairman, said in the next couple weeks. He hopes they can come up with a bipartisan, bicameral agreement on the basic numbers. It would take a while then to actually draft these bills, get them across the floor. It would be very difficult for them to do this by September 30th. But at least the goal, according to Senator Leahy, is maybe get this done by the lame duck in December so that the next Congress that comes in has a clean slate and doesn't need to sort of do cleanup duty for their failures if they are running late, ultimately. And meanwhile, the supplemental requests for Ukraine have gone from hundreds of millions to a billion and now to 33 billion. And that's got to take cycles from Congress while they deal with that also. Yeah, the latest batch requested by the president is for $33 billion, most of that for military and security needs. That's about $20 billion military and security, and then the rest is a little more economic and humanitarian focused. A lot of support for that, at least initially, on both sides. The senators I've mentioned, Senator Shelby, uh, Senator Graham is very vocal on these things. Senator Jim Inhofe, who's a top Republican on armed services, has said positive things about it. They'll review the details. There may be fights to come. I think the biggest challenge for that, though, is Democrats have talked about combining those Ukraine funds with the COVID funds that the Biden administration has sought. They requested $22.5 billion. There were some negotiations. They whittled it down to $10 billion. Really what held that up was the Title 42 immigration decision, Biden's decision to end that policy that allows them to more quickly expel people from the border. Got a lot of pushback from Republicans and some Democrats who said, if you're going to request COVID funds, we need to have a conversation about this COVID-related immigration policy If they meld all of these issues together and combine the COVID and Ukraine funds into one package, that could get weighted down by that immigration debate. But on its own, the Ukraine request has gotten a lot of support in its initial stages. And by the way, does anyone know where the munitions and armaments for Ukraine come from? Do they come out of U.S. inventory or do the contractors get to build new stuff? You know, it goes through somewhat of a complicated process because some of this is appropriations itself that's being requested, and then some is drawdown authority that the president would have some flexibility on. So I think especially looking at this 
$33 billion bill. I wish I could give you more of a specific answer, but there's some flexibility given to the president in exactly how he chooses to go about it. It may be, I'm not sure this spurs a, a longer production uh, in the short term because they do try to move very quickly to get these to Ukraine in the very near future. Jack Fitzpatrick is Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but I quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit Shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.